Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalizing our natural resources, minimizing waste and maximizing human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 19. Today is Earth Day and I'm thrilled to have David Martin as my guest, an eminent thought leader whose approach to all things in life is founded on seeing the value of everything in its purest form and creating systems that enhance their potential. I've been listening to a very insightful summit called Conversations with Nature and it features guests who work and communicate with the planet and animal kingdoms. It's fascinating to hear how their lives have been transformed by their connection to nature. One of the guests is Vida Austin, who spoke about the intelligence of water in episode 5. I'm looking forward to hearing the talk on penguins, people and the planet, three topics that are really dear to my heart. Talking of penguins, it's the 50th anniversary of World Penguin Day on Monday the 25th of April. It was first created at McMurdo Station on Ross Island by a researcher who noticed the Adelie penguins began their migration around this day every year. So they founded the special day to mark the occasion and raise awareness about these delightful creatures. Did you know they spend three quarters of their lives at sea? It's actually quite heartbreaking to think of them swimming in the 11 million tonnes of plastic waste that floats into our oceans every year. That's 5.25 trillion micro and macro pieces floating about. We really do need to have more reverence for Mother Earth. Considering Earth Day began in 1970 to raise awareness about environmental protection, I think we've actually made more progress destroying the environment than we have actually protecting it. We've been creating man-made systems that purport to enhance our lives without considering the impact we're having on the natural systems that support all life. As Sea Shepherd Captain Paul Watson says, we need to think of Earth as a spaceship and nature as the crew that regulate the climate to provide the air we breathe and the food we eat. We need to build our relationship with the planet and have respect and reverence for the Earthship crew. Thank goodness though the tide is finally turning and an ecological regenerative revolution is gathering momentum. Sustainable and eco-friendly lifestyles are becoming more mainstream forcing the commercial industry to develop long-term solutions that work in harmony with nature. Like the US company called All Plant Based, who are on a mission to replace everyday items usually made from plastic with all plant-based materials. And they're currently selling homeware goods, bags, backpacks, fashion accessories, and even a bamboo keyboard and mouse. Two Kiwi companies, Sheer Edge Engineering and Torpedo 7 Outdoor Adventure Retailer, have forged a fantabulous relationship to create and sell the Kakapo kayak, made from woolen fibres. You can even take it back to the store when its life is over, and they'll convert it into new woolen composite products. Both powerful examples of how individual ingenuity becomes more effective in a collaborative relationship without losing any part of itself, allowing both to flourish. 
one of the key philosophies that underpins my guest David Martin's approach to sustainability. But he takes it a step further, as can only be expected of such a visionary oracle. Turn off all distractions so you can fully immerse yourself in David's wisdom to discover how we can make the impossible possible and release the untapped potential of the current state of things in order to live fully and feel emancipated to make our future dreams a reality for generations to come. Welcome to the show, David. It's an absolute delight to have you all the way from Virginia. Lovely to be here. Excellent. Now, there is um, so many different tangents we could go off um, for someone with such an ingenious ability to get to the source of everything and unravel the complicated. But I'd really like to start in Antarctica because we have a common ground there. Indeed. Yeah, it's where I met you about six and a half years ago. You were premiering the film Future Dreaming in Auckland. And what a wonderful film that was. It was an amazing experience to have the opportunity to be not only present for the experience of preparing and ultimately developing that film, but there was something very unique about Antarctica that very few people, I think, uh, can fully articulate, which is the degree to which the energy that is available, if you just tune into the land, you tune into the water, you turn into the the amazing amount of wildlife that's going on, that there is just a different energy there, which is exceptional. It gives rise to a more beautiful expression of humanity. Absolutely. And I found, because I went down after I'd met you, it was the 175th anniversary of um, Sir James Clark Ross's um, visit. And it was the first time a Ross family had been um, there in all that time. But it was so humbling, the power of nature. And as you say, just to, to sit on the ice and to see everything moving and actually feeling a part of it. And the animals not invading their space, but giving them the space and they come up to you without any fear because they know that they're safe. There is that amazing energy that goes on there. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating. You're exactly right. Um, It's one of the few places where you experience an experience of nature interactions where everyone's out of context. The animals are not having an engagement that is conflict filled you're not having an engagement that's conflict-filled. There's a fascination. As yeah. I, I love to share with people, when I did the film, there was a, a great experience of penguins walking up and watching the interview and looking at the camera, looking at the boom mic, looking at all of these things and just being fascinated. And then after they got their fascination fulfilled, they moved on and then another set of penguins would come. And it was this funny little moment where you realize that Everything we've been trained to accept since the 18th century about competition, about fear, about the notion of predation is an illusion that's only reality in its context when we've decided to make conflict the core message. Because it turns out that the penguins were perfectly fine walking around, checking things out. And then when they were done with their fascination, moving on, um, you know, no seal was eating them and no, no vicious anything was going on. And, and so it was really cool. And it's beautiful to see nature at liberty to be fascinated yep. rather than to be allegedly in some sort of competition, which is the fantasy that we were given by things like the Darwinian impulse of survival and yep. concepts like fittest and all those nonsensical terms, which ultimately 
we're fear and scarcity driven terms and uh, Antarctica doesn't have that. Now, I had a similar um, experience with the penguins. We were waiting to go into Shackleton's hut and I was sat on my own and there was a colony of penguins in front and you can hardly see them through the um, volcanic rock and the, and the yeah. ice. And one of the, somebody managed to capture a photo, which is fantastic, and one comes charging out, walks over to me and squawks at me and having like a little conversation. And I had a conversation back, spoke penguin, and then yeah. it crumpled off again. And when it was absolute delight, it really was. Yeah, it is. It's lovely. <laughs> so did you go to Antarctica with a vision to create the film Future Dreaming or was it something that transpired? No, it's in fact entirely not only an accident, but I only found out about the existence of the film when it had won the Sydney Independent Film Festival. Oh. I, I didn't even know it was a film. Oh, okay. Um, Kaya Lason, the the director, producer, and, and videographer with Dan Freen, had asked whether they could set up a camera and just have me talk about life on a penguin colony, which we did. We got off the boat. We sat on a rock for several hours. Camera started rolling, and, and we started having a conversation. And I had no idea it was turning into a film until the film had already won a film festival. So not only was there no intention of doing it, I didn't even know it was a thing. I thought Kaya was doing a bigger film that was really about the broader Antarctic expedition. And what came out, I mean, by the, by the way, he did do a short film on the expedition, but the film that just made its way around the world was um, the beautiful collaboration that I didn't even know I was really fully in. So there you go. That's awesome. And the thing that really struck me about that, and it gets to the core of who you are. I mean, as you were saying, you were you were talking to the camera about your philosophy on life and things. I have to confess, I had to look up the word covalently bonded to our purpose. Yes. yes. <laughs> Can you expand for the listeners as to how that, because your background is genomics, which I also had to look up. I'm into lots of ologies and things, but I hadn't come across yeah. genomics. And it was knowing for me anyway, without knowing the actual um, concept of it. So if you yeah. can explain genomics and, and the- Well, well let's, let's go back to valence and covalence because yeah. it's actually a really cool place to start. So we, we're familiar with the caricature of the Mickey Mouse uh, looking- hydrogen and oxygen combination that begets water. When we think of H2O, we think of an oxygen in the middle and then two little hydrogens like Mickey Mouse ears, you know, kind of sitting outside on, on the edge of that. And that's how we get H2O. Yeah. And what's fascinating about the idea of valence is, is valence is the principle of the charge of an atom that allows the atom to interact with other forms of matter, most of most often another atom, and, and find a way to link. But the linkage is really beautiful. And, and unfortunately, in chemistry classes, we don't really talk about this. And certainly in philosophy, we don't talk about it. What's fascinating about the idea of covalence, which is the linking of energies at that atomic electron sharing level, is that what happens is that the atom, the essence of the thing, preserves 100% of its essence while sharing its energy with another thing, which preserves 100% of its essence. But by the union of those two things happening, 
you facilitate an expression of reality that would not be possible in individual expression. In other words, oxygen is oxygen, hydrogen is hydrogen. But when hydrogen and oxygen decide to get together, yep. they enable a crystal, a liquid, a gas, a vapor. They enable these forms that by themselves, hydrogen and oxygen would never be able to experience. So it's by literally the idea of this lossless identification where yep. I don't give up anything, but I gain everything. I gain the ability to have an experience I could not have as an individuated thing by linking myself to a thing which creates an us experience that is not the sum of the parts. It's actually transformative. So covalence is a beautiful philosophical recognition of living in the fullness of your essence absolutely and not getting into relationships where, oh, I have to give this up or give that up or give this yep. up or give that up. No, be 100% you, be 100% authentic, be absolutely your core essence. And your energy then links to others who are equally individually essence, such that the relevance of our relationship gives rise to a function and an experience that in isolation, none of us could ever imagine or have. Phenomenal. What a great piece of philosophy. It's amazing. Hidden in the plain sight of chemistry. And see, the problem is we pat ourselves on the back of, we make chemistry very complicated and we go, oh, this is very sophisticated and you have to be very smart to get it. Well, the fact of the matter is even the best of chemists and the best of philosophers can't rival the intelligence of water because water understands that to flow and to float and to freeze and to crystallize and to do all those things, what it has to do is it has to bring together the invitation of uninhibited essence in proximity, which gives rise to function that could not be imagined in isolation. I've always felt that the health of our ocean is a reflection of the health of humanity. And there are so many hidden depths we know nothing about. Um, you, yeah. I mean, even on the surface, if you look at microplastics and things like that, it, it's all to do with the masks and things that we wear. Another thing about the ocean, and because I obviously have a great connection to the ocean myself and a passion for it, is that people, again, when you were talking about chemistry and how we make things complicated, we've divided the world into sections in, with borders. We've divided the ocean into different oceans, and it is actually only one ocean, and it serves yeah. us all. And if people could understand that actually that is the thing that supports us. And as Einstein said many years ago, as a great philosopher, if you look deep into nature, you'll find all the answers. Yeah, it's something I echo in, in the film and in everything I do. Everything I do and everything I teach yep. is based on, on that very principle. And what's fascinating is, Philippa, most of us make the mistake of looking at the land. Yes. And we fail to understand that, in fact, much of the land is also floating. It's floating on aquifers. It's floating on an entire ocean itself. So the fascinating thing is we hold this illusion that somehow or another there's this separation between land and sea and all that kind of nonsense. Yep. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of when you go out for a walk, the vast majority of what you're walking over at some level, at some depth, is water. We live on an aqueous, beautiful, magical, amazing earth, and 
it's fascinating to see that even what we think of as isolated and separated from the sea, it in fact isn't. It's just the waters separated from the salt to the fresh and the mineral to the unmineraled and all those sorts of things. But the fact is that, you know, I, I only have to walk outside to be reminded that I am living on the alleged top of a hill, but there's water pouring out of artesian springs out of the ground at the top of the hill. So what is that? That's the evidence that we're literally standing on a floating sea of beautiful interplay between water and land where the root is, in fact, water. And it's in the atmosphere. Again, there's yep. so much that we don't see because we cannot perceive it. Um, we cannot visibly see it because it's not within the spectrum of our, our own ability to see. But it's in the atmosphere the entire time, changing form. Yeah, and Aristotle gave us this idea that we somehow have to see the world through the lens of separation, breaking things down to their minimum viable components. And the fact of the matter is, you know, in many respects, Aristotle was to the Greeks what modern science is to us today, where we're seeing the world through its fragmented components rather than seeing it through its valence and interactivity. And so that's why I'm passionate about it. So that's a long answer. What's covalence? But there you go. That's what it is. Awesome. So have you always been fascinated? Because I'd love to know where it stemmed from. What were you like as a child? Insufferably impossible to manage. Apparently. <laughs> I can't um, imagine that. But when did yeah, it start? I, I, uh, I did not conform to my family in a lot of ways. My mother and father had a very uh, firm rigidity on a worldview that was largely influenced by religion. And I certainly did not embrace that in the way that they would have appreciated. So my experience was not one of a significant amount of joy, um, because when I see the world in the self-evident nature of reality, and then I'm told how to experience it through the lens of um, a dogmatic perspective, I can't help but see the conflict that arises in that position. Mm. And so I was rather relentless in my incapacity to accept dogma. Um, that cost me greatly. Um, I, I didn't have a positive experience of that in any way, shape or form. But um, the great news is it happened at such an early phase in my life that I was relentless in pursuing the fact that the self-evident nature of nature and reality were so compelling that the lies that were being told um, through the dogma and through the religion and through the order of things were laughable in their, their evident um, conflict with reality. I grew up in Southern California in the early 1970s, and during that period of time, it was quite fashionable if you were part of the illumined religious kind of socially active left, if you will, to, um, you know, to be very anti-Vietnam War. So we would do peace marches at the San Diego Naval Base or at other places. My dad famously was very kind and very thoughtful and worked with a lot of uh, returning Vietnam vets who many of them suffered from PTSD and addictions of all forms and, and so forth. And he was lovely at that. But we would go to a, a peace march and, and, you know, do the chants, what do you want peace and when do you want it now? And all of the kinds of placard wearing 1970s kind of made for eight millimeter film moments. But then when I did not conform, there was no hesitation 
to be very violent and, and physically harm me as an individual because I didn't conform. And I always thought there was an interesting paradox that we mm -hmm. could march for peace. But when a young child doesn't conform, then violence is the only option. And, and you know, seeing that paradox as a young boy, yeah. I saw that, you know, my mom and dad had obviously their own journey and their own dogmatic adherence to their way of seeing the world but they couldn't seem to see the self-evident nature of the conflict that on mm -hmm. the one hand they're advocating for pacifism but when it comes to disciplining a boy who sees the world differently the only answer is violence and extreme mm -hmm. violence and so having grown up in that environment you know it gave me a, a beautiful set of tools to be able to sit in great confidence that says, I don't have to accept a narrative that is in fact counter the self-evident nature of reality. I don't have to live in the conflict. I don't have to defile a thing only to somehow redeem it down the road. Mm. Um, and down through life, you know, my father particularly had some opportunities to reflect on some of the things that he did and said. And he commented on the fact that he just never knew how to manage me or to raise me because I, I didn't conform to the, the social norms. And, and the fascinating thing was, even in his later years, it is clear that I still am an enigma in his world because I ask for a consistency yep. and I ask for a transparency and an integrity that is absolute, which is if you say you value a thing live the value. Yep. And if you don't, that's not a problem. I'm not going to judge somebody for their inconsistency. I'm simply not going to accommodate it and somehow try to make it comfortable to live in that internal conflict. So yeah, I, I never had a period in my life where I wasn't the person I am right now. I have more metaphors to use and a broader lexicon to use. But besides that, I'm still the curious little boy who's still as fascinated today as I was when I climbed the Pyramid of the Sun in central Mexico for the eclipse of the sun in the early 1970s. I mean, I'm just fascinated. So how did your journey start? It's such a broad spectrum to what you do. And ultimately, as I said at the beginning, you, you have this amazing ability to unravel the complicated and... Yeah make it simple and actually get to the essence of it, which is really what you're talking about. And it's yeah. the, and align everything and question people as to, you know, as in like maybe your father, but people, it's not about making a judgment, but it's like, well, can you qualify why you're doing what you're doing? Can you see the, um, how the, the dissonance of what you're doing yeah. and saying one thing and, and doing another? So, I mean, you've done law, you've done the patents and you've done finances and it's all about a system, but it's actually all goes back to the essence of who we are and the genomics about that connection with the environment and each yeah. one adding value to the other. Yeah. So if you think about what, what unfortunately was hijacked in the 1950s with the adherence and invention of the model of DNA, which unfortunately to this day is still nothing more than a model. It doesn't exist in reality. It, it is a chemical model of how nucleic acids form. Um, the fact of the matter is that in reality, nature actually uses as its building block chromosomes. And chromosomes in the nature of how they are structured, in the nature of how they are built, are in fact charged, very long, 
wound coils. Now, what that means, Philippa, is that a chromosome is an antenna. It's an antenna. It is not a chemical formula. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't chemical formulas that are components within that antenna. But the way nature delivers information is through a send and transmit antenna called a chromosome. That's the way reality works. And when we break reality into its chemical or industrial chemical model of this digital binary code, which we call DNA or RNA or anything else, what happens is we really lose the fact that when we take it out of context and then we build models based on taking something out of context, then we can't have anything but error. Because it turns out that the more you destroy a thing, the more you take things down to their alleged minimum component structure, you erase context with every one of those steps. So the more I understand structure at its atomic level, the less I understand it at its contextual level. Right. And so all of the work that I've done has been to look at how nature unfolds in context, because it is in fact the notion that we are both send and transmit antenna. We, we receive signals and we give out signals. Mm -hmm. And so does the rest of the ecosystem. Yep. And when we see ourselves as the dynamic interplay of that intelligence, which is both being sent and received, then we have a totally different perspective. And so the theater of education that I have gone through, and it is theater, because the fact of the matter is, I didn't learn anything in college. I didn't learn anything in university. I didn't learn anything other than the magic decipher code ring that you need to have to allegedly credential your way into certain buildings. I've said many times, my PhD in truth, the reason why I have this silly hat here, my PhD is derived from the fact that as a 20-year-old, I was doing business in Japan, a lot of business in Japan, and the Japanese culture did not have room for a smart business executive in his 20s to be in a boardroom of people in their 60s telling them how to structure their business and how to run their international operations. And it turns out that to credential my way into being the person I already was, I needed to get the letters behind my name. Similarly, when I studied law at the University of Virginia, my interest in studying law was the fascination that my grandfather, William Parsons, gave because he was a, a person who loved the law. He loved celebrating the law. He loved the idea of what it meant to have order and discipline. And he was such in love with it that I actually picked up on that and found it fascinating to study law at the University of Virginia, which I also did. My positions in the medical school faculty at the University of Virginia were all credentialing steps, which were merely ways to allow the social illusion to accept that which I already was. And, and so the funny thing is, part of the reason why I don't stand on credentials is because for me, they were nothing but the theater props to allow the what I was and the who I was and the perspectives that I had to be embraced by people who would otherwise have said, well, you're just a brash young guy and we're not going to listen to you. Yeah. put letters behind my name and suddenly I'm credentialed and suddenly I'm worth listening to. <laughs> yeah. I would call into question both of those narratives. I don't know that I'm more more worth of more worth listening to credentialed than I was uncredentialed, but 
you know, that's that's how the theater of of our our modern reality works. And uh, part of the reason why I'm critical of it and part of the reason why I lampoon it is because the fact of the matter is, with very few exceptions, the however many years I guess I was in school, all the way up through the 16 conventional years and then tacking on another five postgraduate years. So the 21 years I spent pursuing credentials, Mm -hmm. I can confidently say were only to put on a uniform that ultimately never fit. Unbelievable, isn't it? I drastically failed everything at school. And, you know, they say you need all these credentials in order to become someone, that person that we already are. And I heard the other day, now I think it was uh, Matthias de Stefano, who was talking about the root of the word educate, which is to bring what's inside out. Mm. (laughs) And I just cracked up laughing. We have a completely different concept of what education is. Yeah, and and I'm not a big fan of what we call education. The fact of the matter is what we call education is consensus indoctrination. And, you know, I can listen to somebody like Ken Wilber, who's a person who I value very greatly. I love, I love a lot of his work, but he doesn't have any problem um, with his kind of linear view of history, failing to take into account, for example, the books that are sitting right behind me, which are the five volume set of the Persian mathematicians, scientists, and healers from the eighth century to the 13th century, who were very much pushing the vanguard of what we in Europe decided to call the Renaissance, you know, hundreds of years later. Right. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Ken will give you a story of of how, you know, humanity has been on this ever evolving um, developmental path. And my argument would be, well, except for the evidence that we're actually at the nadir, not the zenith of our development. We're dumbing ourselves down. We're selectively curtailing what is open inquiry, what is freedom of thought, what is freedom of inquiry. We are shrinking the aperture of awareness and we're calling it progress. Yeah. Um, and, and so even the people who are supposedly helping us think into broader landscapes of consciousness, many of them have adopted a language that is oppressive in its best instances and flat out false in many instances, because the fact is, the era of historicism, you know, Karl Popper's very famous phrase, where we think because we're making the observation that we're, we're somehow at a progressive improvement over that which has come before, is clearly an evidentiary false, because we know that there are periods of time where we've done a better job of being human. Yeah. And again, another thing that um, it's when you're talking about natural remedies and things like that, you know, they call it alternative. Yeah. But it's been in existence since time began and all the a lot of the indigenous cultures have um, brought it up. But now we're people yeah. because it doesn't align with what we've created nowadays so far as health. Well, remember, we've built our entire economic system since 1604 on friction and metering. And let me unpack what I mean by that. The value that we ascribe to a thing is how many hands have to touch it and how many steps of inefficiency we put between the first order and its ultimate use. Yeah. That's the friction piece. And then we meter things, meaning that we serve it in sizes that we can tax and tariff. 
So whether it's energy, whether it is how many cups of coffee you have in a bag of coffee, regardless of what it is, we meter how we experience the world. So the average person now, if they go to their pantry or they go to their refrigerator, has sufficient food for, I don't know, a week, maybe week and a half. But we meter our, our life even through the size of our refrigerators, through the size of our cupboards. And we don't think of it that way, but we should. Because when we realize that the way in which we live is in fact orchestrated to build dependencies, we have to have a metered existence. Then we realize that we, even when we pretend like we're somehow emancipated from the machine, we actually can take a step back and go, oh, hold on a minute. I'm not emancipated at all. Mm -hmm. If I have a carton of milk that's a liter or two liters, I'm making an assumption about cows and my relative proximity to a cow. Now, we don't think of it that way, but that's the problem. We're not thinking. And because we're not thinking, we know that we can go to the grocery store and get another, you know, carton of milk. Well, that's an awareness that's a habituation, but it's actually not a knowing. In fact, it's the erasure of knowing because we don't know how to care for cattle. We don't know how to care for food. We don't know how to care for fertility of land and of, of animals and anything else. We don't know how to do that because, well, it comes to us in plastic wrapped at a grocery store. Well, therein lies our problem. We're not knowing a thing. We are selectively curtailing our knowledge of a thing to the point of mistaking knowledge for habituation and patterning. Mm. And so an economic system based entirely on metered existence and frictional economy is a system that ultimately will destroy the humanity that we all try to share. Absolutely. And well, you're talking there about breaking things down back to their original form. It takes me to a new project that you're doing with Activate Recycling, um, which is really exciting. And I'm not surprised that you came up with it, but it's been in the background for a while. (laughs) Can you share where, where you're going with this for the listeners? Yeah, indeed. So if we go back and look at every piece of matter and energy from certainly the last 3000 years, so I'm going to limit my observations to the last 3000 years, but we've seen the world through this very perverse view of extraction, value add, whatever we call value add, which is really determining the fate of matter and energy. Yep. And then we turn it into a utilitarian product, which is intended to be used and ultimately extinguished. So the paradigm that we live in, and we've lived in this paradigm for the last three millennia. So, you know, in case you're feeling a little left out, don't you, you're, you're in good company. If you're older than 3000 years, then, (laughs) then, you know, then pay attention in a different way. But but the problem is we go through this extraction to extinction paradigm, and that's that's how we've built our world. Yep. Now, inside of that world, in the 1960s and 1970s, we started playing around, and Nori Huddle and Earth Day and all of these ideas um, started playing around with, well, what if we didn't just throw everything away? What if we didn't fall for the the unfortunate but very pervasive approach of planned obsolescence, yep. which came from 
people like the industrial designer, Brooks Stevens, who had this mandate to say, make everything look boring enough that you don't have emotional attachment to anything. So you throw it away rather than fix it or repair it. You know, the industrial design mandate that gave us our consumer economy. If you take a step back and you realize that, hold on a minute, what, what does that economy do? The idea of extraction to extinction, which is the paradigm we've lived in for the last 3,000 years, is a horrible idea. Mm. And what people like Nori Huddle and the Earth Day movement and other things did was they said, well, maybe we should at least reuse some of the things. And that's a good step. That's a wonderful first step. But here's the problem. The problem is at a systemic level, what it did was we assumed that the next thing was a diminished version of the thing that came before. Right. So think yep. about something simple like a piece of paper, Yeah. right? I take the white piece of paper and when I recycle it, I get a browner paper back. And when I recycle that, I get cardboard back. So what happens is even in our model of repurposing, we take things from one phase to a lesser phase, to a lesser phase, to a lesser phase, then to the extinction state. And so what we're doing in Activate Recycling is saying, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Every single thing has retained essence of its pure original form. It's yep. pure form. So this is not about repurposing with a lesser condition. This is about seeing if there's a way to build systems that allow us to take the ingredients and the components back to their pure original form so that we actually start all over with new rather than taking a lesser form and a lesser form and a lesser form and essentially getting multiple uses out of increasingly diminishing returns. Activate Recycling is the first company that is committed to saying, nope, we're not going to repurpose, reuse, recycle. We are going to re-essence things. We are going to use a very interesting technology that Bill Wisman and I developed a couple decades ago, which allow matter and energy to remember their original essence. Wow. And then using that, we allow a process to be envisioned where we can take a thing and just ask it to remember its undefiled form. So we don't need to know what its original essence was or how it was put together. It knows. It knows. This, wow. is, this is the notion, which, by the way, is something I've held for everything I've ever taught, is that inside of all of us, we actually do remember. Yes, absolutely. We remember it all. We remember everything. The tragedy is we condition and we you know, socialize and we habituate this worldview that says, Somehow or another, humans are deficient, and we render them deficient by making sure that they write in the blue lines on eight and a half by 11 or A4 paper. We, we want to make sure that this script is up to the top of the line and down to the bottom of the line, and we want to make sure that all the colors fit inside the black lines, and we want to do all sorts of things. By the time we get to seven or eight years of age, we have actually anesthetize the human capacity to remember mm. to near zero. And then we spend years, in my case, 21 years, getting credentialed to be an expert and go around and recite things. So we bludgeon people to death and club the baby seals of brains of young people into the 
acquiescence and submissive states of going, oh, yes, you're the smarter one. I'm the dumber one. Please feed my brain with the smarter stuff because I'm the dumber one. Well, listen, all of that's an illusion. And, And so what we're doing is we're saying, like everything else in the universe, we, matter and energy, people, have embedded within us the memory of our essential nature. All we need is a context set into which we can be reminded of what we really are. Right. And in the case of Activate Recycling, that's exactly what we're doing. We're letting rocks remember that they were rocks. We're letting hydrocarbons remember they were hydrocarbons. We're letting water remember it was water. We're letting everything remember what it was and let it go back to its remembered state. And it turns out that when you do that, you have a couple of very fascinating features. First of all, it's lossless. Nothing is lost in the process. Second of all, it's regenerative, meaning mm. that the things that you thought were now constrained or limited in their use are now emancipated to be whatever they want to be again. Mm. And so all of the optionality that once existed re-exists without any loss of optionality. And without any human being intervening and saying what it should be. Yeah, there's no should. It's just <laughs> remember. Just remember. Fascinating. So is there any particular material that you're focusing on to begin with? Or material? Well, given the fact that the socially acceptable thing to do is to have a war on carbon, we've decided to actually love carbon first. And the reason is because our problem is not carbon. Our problem is what we've done to carbon. By the way, we could use that metaphor for almost anything in the world. The, the majority of our problems are what we've done to the thing, not the thing itself. Yep. You know, uranium, by the way, is not a bad thing. Uranium enriched, pulverized, smashed, cyclotron. The things we do to uranium harm it. The uranium itself is not a good or a bad thing. It just is uranium. It's just hanging out doing its thing. Like with many other things, there there are a ton of ways in which we make things dangerous by what we do to them. How we label them. Rather than going, well, hold on a minute. Maybe the problem is what we're doing to the thing, not the thing itself. We don't have a war on carbon. We have a industrial model of carbon that has defiled the earth. What we need to do is reintroduce a dance where we realize that carbon, like hydrogen and oxygen, is on a journey. It likes to hang out with other carbon. It likes to bind to these beautiful long chains, whether that's glucose that fuels your cell, whether that's the sap that flows in the spring that becomes the sugar that runs up into the tree to to make the tree fruitful. Whatever it is, the fact of the matter is carbon likes to hang out with carbon and Carbon is, in fact, a very important part of our ecosystem. Yep. And the fact that we don't have an appreciation for it, because what we've done is we've defiled it. We've said its only value is the Promethean impulse to burn it, and we don't care how we burn it. It turns out that's our problem. Carbon's not our problem. Yep. And so we're picking on carbon first to give carbon another break. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I believe that relates to um, tires being one thing. Tires, water bottles, the bunker crude, the messy crap that lines beaches, the the industrial wastelands of 
rail yards where diesel has been able to run into the ground and contaminate groundwater, any, any place where you've got carbon that has been treated with contempt. We're focusing on getting the natural and the human made mess cleaned up. So there you go. Awesome. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) we, We could go on for ages but I've got um, four questions I pose to my um, guests at the end of each interview. Indeed, now, um, I'm looking forward to them. Cool. Um, is there a book and or a person that has influenced you? And if so, how? Yeah, so I would say the book and or the person. Um, unfortunately, we see only through the window of the Greek expression of his life, which was Cyrus the Great. Um, historically, Cyrus the Great is a fascinating Persian figure in that he is recognized by all the major religions as someone with the Abrahamic blessing, someone who is blessed by not only the kind of Judeo-Christian God, but blessed by all the gods, which is pretty important. And if you go back and you ask, well, what was it about him that made him capable of receiving that kind of recognition? And you read Xenophon's Cyropedia, which is the book, Uh, which, by the way, you can get online, whether you want to do it through the Project Gutenberg or whether you want to buy a copy of it. Um, I happen to have a wonderful Greek copy of it sitting somewhere in my bookshelf back here. The Cyropedia is a wonderful expression of how humans can interact with each other and civilize with each other with transparency, with openness, and with a view towards tolerance which is something I deeply love. I love the degree to which Cyrus the Great ultimately found his wisdom in recognizing that tolerance was one of the greatest of human attributes. And so that's something I find quite intoxicating. Now, obviously, many people go, well, Dave, that's kind of a reach back in time to get to Cyrus the Great. (laughs) Uh, It is. That's okay. If you want something a little closer to home and a little closer to Um, the modern era. I find Gregory Bateson's work to be very compelling. And my favorite of his essays or his books, you really can't really think of his writings as books because they are, in fact, more essays uh, in compilation. But Steps to the Ecology of the Mind, uh, another beautiful book and one that takes a very careful examined evaluation of how humans have, through their social lenses, ultimately fractured into a kaleidoscope of decay, what the human intellect is really capable of. And he does a deep examination of that. So Steps to the Ecology of the Mind, another brilliant book. And I can't help, by the way, of of saying that one of my favorite books is the one I just finished writing, Lizards Eat Butterflies. It turns out that the reason I like that book is because it's the first time I was able to sit deeply in my own reflection and say, if I were to explain how I see the world through a series of parables, it was a fun exercise. So it turns out that I'm going to put myself on my favorite reading list, because it turns out that I still love reading that book. And I've read my own book now, I think, for the 14th or 15th time since it's published. And I find something new in it every time. And I was the one that wrote it. So go figure. Wicked. Um, well, that just goes to show you. Yeah, I mean, I'm writing my own book. And it's sometimes when you look back on it, it's um, where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's beautiful. And and I think, you know, a lot of a lot of times I think people sit there and critique. You know, Is it OK to say you like your own work? 
Um, the answer is yes. I tear up when I watch Future Dreaming. I sit there and sometimes look at that film and and go, you know, I'd love to see that guy again. And and so I'm getting to the place for the first time in my life, courtesy in large part of the amazing gift of my beautiful wife, Kim, who has been inestimably part of the transformation of my life. I'm starting for the first time to offer kindness to myself where I used to reserve it only for others. So there you go. Cyrus the Great, Gregory Bateson and Dave Martin. <laughs> Fantastic. Talking with a, couple, a guest um, not long ago about somebody making the expression, you know, oh, you're so full of yourself. Well, actually, yes, I am. And I honor myself for. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's a matter of confidence is, is a bit of a weak word to use that, but it is really finding that alignment within yeah. yourself, recognizing your own value. And why the hell should we not? Um, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. So there you go. Those are those are my three. Excellent. So do you have a favorite quote at all? I like Buckminster Fuller's, uh, you know, I'm a verb, not a noun. I'm an integral function of the universe. I think that's a beautiful quote. Um, but I think I find myself drawn most often to Thomas Jefferson's beautiful quote on the emancipation of ideas and thought when he says, he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. And I love the essence of that, which is mm. the notion that the propagation of light, the propagation of ideas, the propagation of creativity is something which is anti-thermodynamic. This is not something where by giving it up, you lose anything. It is, in fact, the once again, to revisit the opening of our conversation, it is the valence of life. The essence of one thing does not diminish the essence of another. In fact, it expands the visibility of it. So those are the two that I would say resonate very deeply with me. I'm sure like the rest of us, the human race, that you find yourself in a funk from time to time. What do you do to energize yourself? Um, exercise. I am absolutely convinced that the movement of the body is the best way to get your mind out of its looping behaviors, out of its depressive or self-critiquing thoughts. Yep. And for me, I fascinate myself with the elevation of heart rate. So for me, it's not just movement, but I, I love to feel the vitality of pulse. I have a very low resting heart rate and that's Interesting. You know, I'm in my 50s and I am now at a resting heart rate that is lower than it's ever been. And in large part, it's a lifestyle where I've stayed very active. I'm very healthy. I eat very well. But what's beautiful about your pulse is there's something so divine about the notion that for all of the physiology we pretend to understand in the human body, we still haven't figured out the exact function of the sinoatrial node, which is the thing that is the pacemaker in the human heart. And I love the idea of the mystery that somewhere out there in the universe, something is beating you into existence. And I love the idea of meeting that drummer one day. So I'm a big fan of the heart. Fantastic. So to end the interview, if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be and why? So I wouldn't. The great thing is, I think the world is currently in a dynamism and polarity that is absolutely on the cusp of the ignition of a fusion reaction of transformation and illumination yep. that is precisely where it needs to be. I think that all of the 
pros and the antis are doing their job. I think that all of the fours and against, I think all of the conservatives and liberals are doing brilliantly at making sure that we energize a system into which the plasma arc, the lightning strike of intention of transformation is going to happen. And so right now, my entire objective is to celebrate what's unfolding because what's unfolding is this beautiful energetic anticipatory moment into which what is going to unfold next is going to strike. And I am thrilled to be alive in this very moment because I know that the precipitating moment is just on the horizon and wouldn't change a thing. Excellent. Well, your contribution to um, creating that shift is phenomenal. And I would like to thank you personally for your time today and everything, David. And um, I really hope to be a part of everything um, that you're creating for the future as well. Like you, I hold a lot of hope and I'm grateful for where we are. (laughs) Beautiful. And it's such an honor and a joy to celebrate this day with you. I'm grateful for this opportunity. And I look forward to where this conversation goes to unleash light wherever it can. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you, David. Take care. You're most welcome. Bye. So much food for thought. Definitely something that needs a re-listen to integrate the inspirational gems that make you think about the value of all our natural resources. Next week, to align with World Laughter Day, I'll be talking to joyologist Pat Armistead, who learned to laugh while processing her own grief unwittingly healing the lives of many others who crossed her path on her journey to living a life full of joy. Enjoy your week. Do something to build your relationship with Mother Earth and make this annual celebration of our planet a part of your everyday life. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, be it Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or iHeartRadio, so you don't miss future episodes. And be sure to get in touch if you have a subject or guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential. 